iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. You're listening to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, we revel in Manchester City's treble win after they sealed the Champions League over Inter Milan at the weekend. We will discuss Pep Guardiola and his relationship with his team, the football that Manchester City have played during the course of the season, and we will talk about the magnitude of the achievement. We will also delve into why some fans aren't as happy as others over Manchester City's victory, including the charges currently hanging over the club. This is The Game. Hello, welcome back to The Game podcast. Uh, I'm Hugh Wisencroft, of course. Uh, it's been a long season. We're at the end of the road. We'll maybe reflect on that a little bit later on. But of course, this will essentially be a Manchester City special. And why not after they completed the treble? And they've waited a long time to win the Champions League, frankly. Although I wouldn't call it a finally type story because I think that's going a little bit over the top. They've only been in the Champions League, European Cup, in fact, going way back to the, the 60s and 70s on 13 occasions and they've already won it. So I would actually say it's absolutely amazing that they've already won a Champions League title. But I get it. You know, they've been knocking on the door for several seasons now, if not longer. And it all came to the close, if you like. Winning against Inter Milan, a 1-0 victory in Istanbul thanks to Rodri's winner, Pep Guardiola back on top of the European tree and ultimately world football. He won the Premier League, the FA Cup and City emulate Manchester United's triple trophy hall from 1999, becoming the second English club to achieve the feat. It was uh, an attritional final. I'm not going to say it was a classic. No one really remembers how the game went unless it's incredible. And ultimately, all that matters is who won. And Manchester City were the victors, a bit like the FA Cup final. They kind of kept their opponents at arm's length for most of the game and managed to ride out any scary moments. And so um, the treble is complete. And there at the Ataturk Stadium was Paul Hurst. He joins us on the podcast alongside Gregor Robertson and Alison Rudd. A little bit later on, we'll be talking to Owen Slot as well. But Paul, listen, let's journey inside the stadium, if you like, as City managed to get over the line just. What did you make of the game? I agree with you. It was a bit of an attritional final, wasn't it? It wasn't a, a classic, you know, quite a few finals are like that. Certainly in the first half, City looked completely um, different to the team that had blown away Bayern Munich and, and blown away Real Madrid. I think a lot of the players had, had, the, um, had the jitters, didn't they? Rodri in particular, who had been brilliant all season, kept giving the ball away in the first half. And, and Edison was quite shaky as well, so... It was a pretty nervy 45 minutes, uh, opening 45 minutes for City, and maybe not helped by the fact that you've got Pep Guardiola shouting "relax" on the on the touchline in a, in a frantic state to the to the players. Um, he seemed even more pumped up than 
than usual for it and, and on edge as well. But the second half, they, they came out of their shell a little bit more. I think Phil Foden was a driving force behind that. He was um, the most energetic player after Kevin De Bruyne went off. And yeah, and they just, Rodri's finish was was a you know was a fantastic goal. But then at the end, I, I, was, I was convinced that um, convinced that Inter were going to equalise and take it into extra time. It was two fantastic saves from Edison at the mm-hmm. end. So just managed to get over the line in the end. It was a team performance, if you like. It wasn't a complete team performance, but I think they needed everyone to put in about a seven. They had a couple of, I wouldn't say exceptional players, but players that went above what the rest of their teammates did. I think, namely, John Stones in particular and Edison, who you've already mentioned. Um, and, and they were, and it's a bit like City most weeks, you know, even if the team's slightly off it, there are one or two players that put in a good enough performance and have enough talent to get them over the line. Yeah, exactly. I thought John Stones and Ruben Diaz were were the best players. But we were talking about our ratings afterwards in um, in the bar, and we were talking about you know who would you what do you given so and so, and everyone was really like everyone had given like sixes and a couple, they're only like a couple of sevens. Everyone agreed. All the other reporters agreed that it wasn't like a it wasn't a classic city performance by any means. But yeah, Stones was very very calm on the ball. There were was one stage where I think he got dispossessed on the edge of the interbox. Somehow managed to get it back and then like nip, nip it through someone's legs or pass pass an inter player. And that was really, um, you know, a really classy move from him. And he's he's yeah he's come on leaps and bounds this season. He's been one of City's best players, and you know that's that's come through that reinvention as a as a central midfielder. You know you'll see him alongside Harland and. <laughs> One of the reporters um, said afterwards to him, "Are you going to ask for the number ten shirt next season? Because you know that's where you seem to be playing uh, now." Paul, can I ask you? Because I, I thought it was a more absorbing final than you did. I think, but is that partly because was in the stadium were the fans as nervous as the players? Was there a, was there a tension there? I mean, I felt yeah. there might have been off the telly, but was was the one there? Yeah, it, it was quite nervous, the atmosphere, Alison. It was quite, um, I think, I don't know, maybe everyone just expected City to blow into a way, but they were into a, was so, their pressing was far better than I thought it'd be. You know, they were really on top of top of City. I thought Brozovic was, was incredible in midfield for Inter. And I think that transmitted to the stands as well. I think everyone expected City to be 2 0 up, 3 0 up by half time. Um, so when they weren't, it, everyone started getting a little bit nervous in the um, in the city. And um, Pep said the day before the game, he said it's important for us to to know that when it's nil nil, we're not losing. And I just think he would have said that to the players before because he knew that it was going to be an attritional match. So they just managed to keep their heads when 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 it was nil nil and not not become frustrated by it and leave themselves open to to an inter-counter-attack. But yeah, certainly for the first hour or so, it was very tense inside the stadium. And um, were, you, were you there for the um, game at the Etihad, Etihad when Brentford won with the same formation that Inter had on Saturday? Uh, I think I was on holiday that day. <laughs> no, you don't take <laughs> Sorry, holidays, that do you? Yeah, no, it might have been the one weekend I've had off the season, yeah. I'm glad um, you qualified it with the one weekend off. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just... It just but, I, mean, I mean, from a... From a very Premier League biased perspective, and also I'm very uh, into Brentford, as you know, it felt to me like they had, they might actually have sat down and watched that 
game. Yeah, well, I, the midfield, certainly. I, I thought that Inter really nullified that threat. And there's absolutely, absolutely no space whatsoever in that midfield for City to to have control of the ball. Even when Haaland Harl, started dropping deep to the point where he was playing in, in midfield. And it, it, but even then, you know, that didn't, that didn't solve the problem because he was just running into a load of, load of Inter players. They were very stubborn, but also there were a couple of occasions in the first half where I thought, oh, this... You know, if they had a bit more quality up front, they, they probably would have gone ahead. I was thinking of a couple of when Edison was passing it out from the back and being misplaced to pass. And I think if you've got really kind of a really good quality attacking forward line, you would have had someone to put that away. But they just didn't have that. I thought Checo had a poor game. I don't know why he, he kept you on the pitch for so long. But yeah, I think. You see, everything you've said, Paul, makes it. If, if someone had missed the game. They were thinking, oh, it sounds quite exciting because it was, it was in the balance. It was in the balance. You, you, you really felt that Inter could score. That... Tension's the right word. There was just a yes, lot of tension, tension in the air. But still, yeah, yeah, yeah. still absorbing rather yes. than attritional only, I think. Yeah, like I, I, I'm with, with you, Paul. I've, I was surprised by how good Inter were. I mean, look, we knew they were obviously a really good side and, and their performance, they were a wily side as well. Their performances against AC Milan so they knew how to kind of put a game plan into action in a cup competition, but a final is different, and and it was that was so proactive as well. It was really as Paul was saying in City's faces, and there were a couple of moments. Although they they didn't really fashion any great chances, there was a couple of moments where there's one that comes to mind where Demarco swung a really deep ball to the to the back post, and Barella tried to cut it back first time, and he could have probably controlled it. Yeah. It was just those kind of little final little moments. That were the difference, really. They did, you know, some of those things were capitalising on a mistake, a city yeah. mistake because of city's nerves, but they just didn't have that final little bit of quality, as we're saying, to kind of, you know, to possibly make a real game of it. A couple of huge moments late on as well. It could have been like 99, to be honest, oh, God, in, yeah. in Inter's yeah. favour. Um, Edison's save on the line, hits his shin from Lukaku's header a few yards out. What, I mean, is, what is Lukaku doing missing there? Yeah. I mean, that was. Uh, that's going to haunt him. He's got a lot of haunting mo- moments in yeah, his career now, but that's going to be it's going to be one of them. And, and 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 of course, Edison's save that you mentioned already, Hursty. Yeah, the, the Lukaku one. I mean, I I watched that back a few times. I just I still don't know how he's how he's missed it. I, one of my colleagues, David Heitner from the Guardian, was saying that he bumped into Pep after them after the press conference. They were waiting for the lift, and while they were waiting for the lift, there was a replay of. The Lukaku missed chance on the, on the telly, and he said that Pep was just staring at it and like in disbelief. <laughs> and Dave, Dave said to him, "Oh, can you believe that he missed that chance?" And Pep, uh, Pep just like puffed his cheeks out as if to say, "Like, no." <laughs> he kind of he looked. I, I guess that he was probably thinking, "Yeah, we got away with one there." Because yeah, if if he scores that, then they have the inter have the momentum. I guess going into into extra time so it was it was quite nervy nervy it, ending for it do you know it's part of the magic and the mystery of football and why we love the game really because you know those things happen you know a 97 and a half million pound striker misses a header from five yards out you know those things happen and, and Guardiola if you like and Manchester City we talk about the years that they didn't win it and you know how how many things have cost them Leon or Real Madrid last year and 5-1 aggregate defeat to Liverpool was five years ago, something like that. And ultimately, at times, they were, in my opinion anyway, better than they are now, a more complete football team than they are now. And yet, 
they didn't get the rub of the green in some of those games. The moments, if you like, didn't go their way. So I'm kind of still happy that, you know, as good as Manchester City are and they've won the treble, that it wasn't it wasn't the you know, the drubbing that I think people expected because that would have I think said something quite negative about football as a whole now if Man City had run out five nil winners in a Champions well, League final. Well, or something do you like think that. do we all think that because nobody pays any attention other than Inter Milan to Brentford, do you think the world <laughs> has now seen Inter Milan okay, the result didn't go their way, but it could easily have done. They had more chances. They created more chances, clear-cut chances than City did. Do we think Inter Milan have shown everyone else in the Premier League and indeed in Europe next season how you get in City's path that you you stop them being a well-oiled machine? That this is it's a new puzzle for Pep to solve. I think. But isn't I, it? I do think it's harsh for us to kind of think. Well, Inter Milan have shown you know, everyone how to play against Manchester City because it almost puts them in the same category as Brentford. Like, you can try and do what Inter Milan did, but I think we're all sitting here like there were such huge underdogs. They have a number of very good players. And if you have that kind of quality, which I think Inter Milan do, I think that's the thing that people were most surprised about. You know, they talked about Dzeko's age, but ultimately they've got they've got Dzeko who's had a great career they've got Lautaro Martinez who so many clubs in world football would want they've got Nicolo Barella Brozovic you know they've got Dumfries you know the, the Bastoni Anana most football clubs do not have players who can execute what Simeone and Zaghi wanted them to do at the weekend so you can sit back and say we can try and play like Inter Milan next time Man City come to town but being able to do it and having the quality to do it is another thing Plus, City don't play with like they had the jitters. This Paul has already said in, <laughs> yeah. in every game. They clearly did. Like there were so yeah. many unforced errors. Uh, it was so uncharacter- uh, uncharacteristic of them. But that's because it's a Champions League final. This is this, you know, despite them being serial winners, despite all the things that we we said before the game, they're humans, and it was a massive moment for them, um, and it showed. Yeah, it wasn't a surprise to hear so many of the City players. Hursty took time painstakingly to highlight how, how poorly they thought they'd played. Yeah, it was quite refreshing, wasn't it, to see to see them actually tell the truth. You know, they were Jack Grealish said he was awful. <laughs> Which, uh, yeah, woeful, didn't he? Yeah, uh, yeah. And he's, he, I, I was thinking, I, those were two players in the first half. Where I thought they really underperformed here. But yeah, I, I think Pep said that finals do strange things to players, and I, I just think that that was summed up in in that first half. So yeah, that, it was quite. It's quite refreshing to hear that after the match. I think City also were were hampered by the fact that you have De Bruyne there, um, and not just for the quality that he brings. He's still their best player, isn't he, De Bruyne? Mm. Um, but also, I think they they were probably psychologically thinking as well. Oh no, it's happened again. Our best player has gone off in the Champions League final. It happened in twenty twenty one when Rudiger um, took him out, um, and City just didn't seem anywhere near their best after that moment. So. Rodri said that after the match. He said, "Oh no, you know, we we thought it's it's happening again. We, we can can we deal with this?" And you know, in the end, they, they were able to do that. But it's probably going through their minds that you know, a sense of deja vu again. It's. I thought also, Paul, it was quite canny of the players to be honest about their failings because that's exactly what Guardiola would want from them. You can imagine yeah. that you can imagine pre-season him him not wanting to have to tell them they're not the best. He doesn't have yeah. to if they accept they weren't. Yeah, well, they're all they're all, you know, they're all robots, are they? And uh, I think we as journalists, you know, we we get put in, put in front of so many players, don't we, who have been media trained to the point where they become robotic. 
and I just think it's it's refreshing to see a, a player actually say it like it is. You know, neither Grealish nor Rodri went on telly saying, "Oh yeah, you know, we were, you know, we were a bit unlucky or something like that in the first half." They they both said we were awful, we were poor, <laughs> um, and you know they can't. They're just telling the truth. So, but how does that make yeah. the inter players feel? They must they must feel doubly <laughs> dreadful. <laughs> Yeah, well, how, that, how lucky that, for them to get City that, on an off day collectively, and they can't win it. Well, that was Inter made them play. You know, that was the reason why they were off, weren't they? That they snuffed that Inter made them that way. That was part of it. But um, yeah, they, they probably were a bit. You know, that that was a better chance. That was the best chance they ever have. Yeah, beating City. Paul, you've covered um, Manchester football as correspondent for what since 2016 as reporter for since 2016. Um, and there's been quite a journey for Manchester City and their fans in that period of time. What was the emotion like in the stadium at full time and from the fans that you managed to meet and I'm sure uh, share a drink with uh, out in Istanbul after the final? Because, you know, there's two sets of City fans, aren't there? There's City fans who are probably under the age of 25, even if they're local, who don't didn't experience Manchester City at Main Road, didn't experience the relegations and and really hairy times for the football club, if you like, who really only feel success uh, as, as Manchester City fans. And then ultimately, there are the ones that have been there for decades gone by who are probably still in shock that their football club has turned around in such drastic fashion. Yeah, I, th- I think the, everyone was relieved. That That's how I would describe it. Mm-hmm. Because they knew that both sets of, you know, those two groups, you're right, they are kind of generally split into those two groups. They both, well, they all knew that if they didn't win it, they would be described as bottlers, wouldn't they? Mm. Because, you know, let's face it, City have been the best team in Europe for the last four or five years, certainly three or four years. And they had the Chelsea final, which they should have won, were huge favourites to win. Um, and they lost that partly because of Pep's tactics, his team selection, but also because of how the players performed on the night. Then they had the Real Madrid meltdown last season, which, you know, I mean, it's crazy to concede that amount of, you know, three goals in, in the short space of time that they did. So they, they would have they would have known that they would have had that, you know, that bottler's tag and they, they probably would have gone away thinking, will we ever win this? You know, will we, we beat Bayern Munich and Real Madrid to get to the final and we were playing a, a team that were, you know, not as good as Inter and, and uh, sorry, not as good as uh, Real and Bayern. So they would have thought, oh, we've got that mental hurdle that we just can't get over. So I think everyone was quite, was obviously happy, but they were also relieved to get that, that um, you know, monkey off the back. Uh, finally, before you go, Hursty, there is one other storyline that came out of Istanbul. It involved in particular the Ataturk Stadium, which is what, 14, 15 kilometres outside of the city, I think. And many fans complaining about the organisation, Metro being incredibly packed. Um, but also kind of one road in, one road out, taxis dropping them off, you know, uh, 45 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half walk to get into the stadium. You know, some saying that they were left without, you know, water for a long time, food for a long time as well at the match. Um, I guess it's a different experience, of course, if you're there with the media. But what stories did you hear from fans around their experience? Yeah, it was a pretty shambolic operation really uh, but, but everyone was advised to, to leave really early to get to the ground it, it took us about an hour and a half to get there in a taxi the, the metro system there is you know it does there is a station at the 
at the stadium, but it's it's not the greatest metro system, and it takes it takes about two hours to get there from from the centre of town. Um, so a lot of people got taxis, and a lot of people got off the uh, they were dropped off about two miles from the stadium because the because of the traffic jam, because the drivers couldn't go any further. It was it was very dangerous. You've seen people walking on the hard shoulder all the, all that way to the to the stadium, and it was quite a chaotic road as well. So. It wasn't the the best organised final that that I've ever been to, um, and certainly on the way home as well. I was speaking to a, a couple of city fans uh, on the flight back yesterday, and they were saying that they had to they were on a shuttle bus, and it took them two and a half hours to get to their hotel from the from the stadium. So, you know, they're all very. I think if they'd have lost, they would have obviously been it would have probably been even more of an issue. But that doesn't excuse the fact that it was so poorly run. I've been to other finals that have been that have run like clockwork, really. Certainly, in comparison to this one, so I can't see that stadium getting uh, get another big event um, anytime soon. But isn't this absolutely ridiculous? Given what happened in Paris last year, and UEFA yeah. were—I mean, they weren't only to blame, but they were partly responsible for how appallingly run entry and exit was from the Stade de France. So. You, you th- you'd think UEFA would get more involved in helping the locals <laughs> make sure it's not a, at best an uncomfortable experience. I mean, yeah, it's, it, right. you have a long time to plan for these things. They award yeah. they award the, the final. They don't do, I mean they did in Paris's case do it a few weeks before virtually. But I mean, you you have time to get it right, and for it, for it to be this bad in the wake of the fallout from. The Paris final is is it's a bit of a joke, isn't it? Yeah, and they put they put Istanbul back two years, you know, so they've had another two years yep. to, to prepare for this. And this this stadium has got this one road in, one road out, as as you said, Hugh. So there's absolutely no way that anyone in the right mind could get there with any kind of ease. I was watching, I was sat in the in my seat in the in the Tribune watching a live video of the city bus try to get to the stadium. Uh, this was about probably about an hour and a half before kickoff, and they had a police escort, but they still couldn't get through the traffic because <laughs> the, mm. the, the taxis weren't moving over to the hard shoulder, and that hard shoulder had some fans on it as well. So that just describes how chaotic it was. And uh, the, both the buses had to weave in and out of traffic, and then they got to the stadium, and there were there were fans there congregating, so they couldn't get past them. I don't think City got to say this. The City bus got to the stadium until about, I'd say, about an hour, hour and 25 till kickoff. And I think normally that would be probably half an hour earlier, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it wasn't, you know, you know, fans are obviously the, the main main worry in that situation. But even for the teams, they struggled. Going to see what um, Wembley's got in store because it's, I guess, got to restore its reputation as it holds the Champions League final next season. Fingers crossed that we don't see any more chaotic scenes. Um, Paul Hurst, thank you so much for joining us on the game podcast with everything that happened out in Istanbul. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. So that's the football taken care of. And I wanted to, to separate the podcast into three parts, really. The football, and that's, I think, everything that we witnessed on Saturday night. 
but also the size of the achievement in winning the Champions League and in particular winning the treble. And I think we'll come to the politics of Manchester City and our reaction to it in the third part of the podcast when we'll be joined uh, by Owen Slot. But let, let's talk about the size of the achievement next for Manchester City because, as I mentioned, at the 13th attempt, City have become a European Cup winner, the sixth English club to do it after Liverpool six times, Manchester United three times, uh, Chelsea and Nottingham Forest both twice, and Aston Villa. Uh, on the way to the final, um, they came past RB Leipzig, Bayern Munich and Real Madrid, obviously finally entering the final, ending the season as the tournament's only unbeaten team, eight wins, five draws from their 13 games. No team managed to score more than once against them in the Champions League this season. And obviously, they now become the second English club to complete the treble, okay? I don't want to see any more tweets, posts, or comments about teams that have won a treble. The treble, okay? The English treble. The, no, the treble. Ten teams in European football have won the treble. The treble being the m- number one tournament in Europe, the number one league in your country, and the number one cup domestically, okay? Not three cups, not the League Cup. And a league. No, I only said English because I noticed in the paper this morning the first was Celtic. Yes, who won a quadruple, no less, didn't they on their on their treble year? Yeah, I think they won all four trophies that season. So, um, uh, what sixty seven yeah. Lisbon Lions? Unbelievable. Yeah, um, but yeah, you, you just managed to get that one in. So, yes, but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the achievement of winning the treble. I'm digressing slightly, but um, how big an achievement is it for Manchester City? You could make a case it's slightly embarrassing it's taken them that long to get the European angle of the treble in place because with the the odd exception, really, they do tend to win the other two trophies with ease, which allow relative ease, which allows them to put a lot of energy and mental arithmetic into sorting out you know, how to plot their way through Europe. They have a big enough squad to be able to cope with the demands of being in Europe. They, you know, they they have such depth of quality in their squad and their inability to navigate Europe prior to... And you could argue they didn't really navigate it that well on Saturday night, really, because they could... I think they could quite easily have lost that game. But the, the, the fact that it's taken them so long, I think, d- dilutes it slightly because we've been in this situation before when 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 a city going to start showing their true worth in europe oh it's not this year oh it's not this year it's that's a good it, thing is is it what do you mean it's a good thing well it means that it's not so easy you can ju- can't just pour millions and millions of uh, oil dollars into into a project and Ooh. win the european cup in, and, and in the second season yes, it doesn't, a good yes, thing. It doesn't a buy thing. you class paris saint germain though have shown us that Buying Absolutely. loads of brilliant Absolutely. players and just throwing them out on the pitch isn't enough. You need well, more than City that. City are not are not PSG at all. No, They're I know, much, but that's but that's a coach than. But that's the point. That's been. where you give them the credit because well, even yes, though I'm they've had the you, money, yeah, of course they've got credit because they've actually done it. But I think it has taken them. I think most people would say it took City too long to grapple with Europe. I think they will look at that and and think of it as a positive. I, I'm, I'm glad it took them longer than. Yes, but your yeah, emotions about it aren't season. the point. The point is, Hugh asked how big a achievement it was, and I think it's slightly tainted by the fact that this, this should have happened a while ago. I'll take a different view. Uh, the, diminishing this, the achievement is foolish. 
Yeah, for for almost the same reason that Alison has 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 pointed to there, but just take, looking at it from a different angle, I think that it's shown that you know money doesn't always buy. Manchester United have spent just about as much money in the last decade. It's not, it's pretty comparable. Yeah. And look where they are. And you know the the, the sums of money being spent now. Dick, uh, Matt Dickinson's piece in the in the paper today, kind of comparing Manchester United's and and City's treble is excellent. It's you know just reminds you like how. Thing. <laughs> they signed. I think they spent like twenty eight million on Yapstam, Blancvist, and maybe York or someone. You know, twenty eight million pounds that season, ahead of that season. The landscape has changed forever, and a lot of that is is quite distasteful. You know, you know, when the sums of money we're talking, they've spent about a billion pounds achieving this, so uh, or more. So putting all that to one side, you still look at this team and what Guardiola in particular. His influence on this team and his influence on players and the way they play the game—it's joyous. It's 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 exquisite. Yeah. And look, I, I I understand all the all the arguments all the, about what what can diminish this as an achievement, but I still think we saw in the final that this is still like eleven players having to go onto the pitch, and they were nervous as hell. And despite them being some of the best players in the world. They made hard work of it. It's never going to be easy winning three trophies. We, we saw De Bruyne came off. We saw you see how many finals we've seen of you know referees have have had an influence over them. It's it's still an incredibly incredibly difficult feat. But so in the league, in the league, a lot of teams don't go for it against City in the league. If they've if they've if they've got a midweek game or they feel they've got a couple of injuries, they will identify the game against City as the one that they, they almost write it off before they've played it. So that. Winning the Premier League for City because of their innate strength isn't so exhausting for them. The FA Cup, a lot of clubs don't don't play the FA Cup properly because they they put their position in the league as a priority, and the romance from the FA Cup is slowly diminishing for that reason because it's not a priority for every team who enters because they don't feel they have the depth of resources and they have to. You know, the manager will have to decide what's going to get him the sack ultimately. Is it league position or winning the cup? And it's league position that he needs to concentrate on. So Arsenal's challenge aside, it is, a, in terms of historically, it's a relative breeze for City to clinch the title, which they do on a regular basis, and a domestic trophy, which they do on a regular basis. Their hiccups have come in Europe. And I just, I do feel, given that they've, had a, the luxury of being able to complete and it's it's been what they as an organisation what they want for so long their inability to have grabbed it and to have grabbed it in such peculiar circumstances we've we've already discussed how it wasn't a vintage or classic City performance at all it relied on one or two individuals coming up with the goods at the right moment it doesn't to me feel like an astonishing feat it just feels a bit ho-hum this should have happened sooner I think if we compare it to Manchester United, I, I would I would agree broadly with that, but I don't think that diminishes the achievement itself because yeah. that, that that was a different era. It was a completely different experience to live through, the jeopardy of it. You know, even look. I think they had, they won the title with ten fewer points. Manchester United. It was a different world. Yeah, yeah. I think they went through, and I think in, in the piece in the paper today, they they had to go to extra time and penalties and two occasions in the FA Cup, maybe yeah. extra time or penalties. So like. Yeah, there was more jeopardy. There was more. It was. It felt like more unlikely. There's a line in Matt's piece. He said it's like kind of gathering thunderous inevitability to this, and it's true. Yeah. But it still had to happen. People had to go out out there and do it, and that cannot be diminished. 
Yeah, Manchester United in 99, uh, they, they finished above Barcelona in the group, so Barcelona got knocked out. They were behind Bayern, so they finished second in their group in 1999, then came past into Juventus and obviously Bayern Munich uh, in the final. But they were more, I know it sounds weird to think of Manchester United like this, but they were kind of underdogs in most of those ties. It's not really the same as what we thought of Manchester City going into this season. As much as we look back on Ferguson and and Manchester United as this era of dominance, you know, particularly when it came to European football, you know, I don't think an English club had been in a final for more than a decade. Yeah, and now we're talking about English clubs competing against each other in a lot of these finals yeah, now. Yeah, exactly. So again, that's another way that that football, the kind of power, has shifted in football. Yeah. What I'd say about the size of the achievement for Manchester City is, I kind of always said this. All right, to have all the money in the world is one thing, to spend it the way that they have and to produce what they've produced in terms of the standard of football I think is incredible because even if you think about Chelsea who spent huge sums of money during the Abramovich era, they won two Champions Leagues. I don't think we ever saw a a football team produced by Chelsea in those two decades that would be comparable with Manchester City over the last five years in terms of the quality of football that we've seen. Obviously, I think a lot of the achievement comes down to the talents of Guardiola uh, I won't take credit for this point. I was with Perry Groves, double title winner with Arsenal in his playing days yesterday, who said to me, if you look at all of the top managers, Guardiola's ability to improve elite players, who most of us would say have nowhere to go in terms of their ability, you know, his ability to ask questions of those players to make them think about what they can do to improve their games is really his unique talent because you can have Messi in your team if you want, but when you're going into the media and saying he needs to work on this, he needs to work on that, or Thierry Henry when he did, or Ronaldinho, you know, and and then to look at some of the City players who he's pointed the finger at during his time in charge and managed to get more out of, Sergio Aguero, you know, players like that, that has been kind of remarkable, really. Um, And it was interesting to see the amount of Manchester City players who were hugging Guardiola at the end and thanking him because ultimately, I, I, I'm one of these people, I think coaches can do so much. Players have to go out on the pitch and execute it, and they need a particular level of talent. They need the, the work rate. You know, They need to make the sacrifices required, really, to be at that level. And so you need to give the players most of the credit. But it, it, what was most interesting about it is we know that a lot of the Manchester City squad do not have great personal relationships with Pep Guardiola. He isn't that kind of manager that stays... He's really close to them, and you know they go in if they have a really... You know, intimate issue or something that's that's bothering them. You know, go and knock on the manager's door, and he'll have a really you know lovely conversation with you. He doesn't have that relationship with his players. So, what was most interesting really is to see them kind of say, "Look, thank you for this," because without you and and Jack Grealish is one of those who basically the the manager threw down the challenge to him after the first season. You know, are you going to be one of my players or not? Are you going to do everything that I ask you to do? Are you going to start letting go of the ball earlier? The improvement that, that Grealish has made in this season, again, t- to to end it as a treble winner and the emotion that he showed is kind of... I don't think we're going to see... This is, I guess, well, the point I'm getting to. A manager whose players are so devoted to everything that they are asked to do because they're so talented at any given point, they could just say, I'm good enough to ignore this guy for five minutes of a game, but they never do. To do all that too without the relationship breaking, that's the thing. It's like... You look at the people on the pitch there the other night. De Bruyne has obviously had been dropped for periods of the season. Aki didn't play at all last year. Same with Grealish. Uh, Stones had long periods out of the team. Yeah. And as you say, it's like something about him. They know that they're best if they can if they can be if they can be you know part of his team, part of his his best eleven. 
that there's nowhere better for them to be, basically. So it's like managing to to test them and push them and make sure their standards are always at the very highest without the relationship breaking. There's not many players. You know, there's only someone with an ego the size of Ibrahimovic, really, who I can recall that's definitely had a fractured relationship. He really, him. really didn't like Pep. Yeah. No, he didn't. I think Yaya Toure and him didn't get along in very end, well yeah, at all, yeah. yeah. I think the football, the change in the football this season, if someone were to say why they become treble winners, I'd actually say the tactical change. Because I know you mentioned they were knocking on the door and probably should have won it before. And, and Guardiola said when he was asked, what's the difference in, you know, in this team compared to the others that you've had and why they've become Champions League winners? And he said, we've now got four centre-backs on the pitch yeah. so we can defend the penalty box better than any of the teams that I ever had. He kind of conventional fullbacks. He's virtually got rid of. Carl Walker's been in and out of the team at times. He's put in some magnificent performances as well as a conventional right back, particularly against Vinicius Junior. But he said earlier on in the season of Carl Walker about that John Stones role. Oh, he's not good enough to do it. And everyone thought, oh, you know, he's really criticising Carl Walker. And you kind of think about Guardiola's history, and you think actually that was the challenge now to Carl Walker. You know, he put Rico Lewis in there and said, oh, Rico Lewis, incredible player, 18 years old. You know, he's going to be able to do this. It was kind of a nudge to Carl Walker to say, hold on a minute, how comes you can't do this job that I'm asking you to do? John Stones has done it brilliantly. But even he said at the end of the game, he apologised for his performance in his post-match interview. He said, like, at times today I was a number eight and I'm not very good at that and I'm trying my best and I can only apologise. And everyone's going, he was man of the match know, yeah. in the Champions League final. So that's the kind of standard that Guardiola is setting for the players. He's laid out, he lays down the gauntlet time and time again for huge players in world football to improve themselves and go on another level. And again, the credit has to go to him for that. That was the fundamental challenge after signing Haaland. It was off, you know, how did they still get the overload in, largely in midfield? And it's always been with a fullback stepping in. But that left them vulnerable to the counter-attack, which they've always, they always have been, but that left them even more vulnerable. So using the centre-half to step up and changing the makeup of the, the three who are behind them, or two a lot of the time. Not many people see those <laughs> those things in a game. Not many people can like even... Envisage those those sorts of innovations, let alone actually go and do it and play John Stones, who's not a centre midfielder, basically as a centre midfielder yeah. in a Champions League final, and leave out the right back. It's not just innovation; it's the confidence to actually say, "I'm going to go and do but this." But at least and that, he didn't that's do it for the first time in the final, and they were used to it. That was the key, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Obviously, look, well, there are people who say he's over he's overthunk it many times before. This is overthinking it, but it worked. But, so he, like, but he did the overthinking earlier. He didn't do it. And surprise everybody on the night. Yeah, although it was going back to playing four, four centre halves on the pitch again when Kyle Walker has been has been a big feature recently. Yeah. So it was still a surprise. I would have thought he would have played Kyle Walker and maybe left out uh, Aki or, or Kanji. Yeah. But he still felt that po- probably because of the size and stature of a team were playing two up front, which is a rarity. That's it. Yeah. Is, and you know. That's it. I think that was that was the yeah, decision. He did the logical because, thing, not exactly, the surprising because thing. you think Kyle Walker. Why do we play Kyle Walker in any given game? Well. If they've got an exceptional winger, Walker can nullify that. And Inter Milan don't. So they, they play with the two up front, they play with wing backs. And he had the confidence that John Stones would be able to adapt his position and um, Ake would be able to, on, on the other side, if, if needed at any point, to cope with, with, if you like, the marauding wing back. So, again, tactically, it was absolutely sensational. He's taken, if you like, European football, world football on another level because we're going to see more teams try and employ this. I've got to say, you know, you see a lot of teams in the EFL trying to play it out from the back. 
there aren't going to be a lot of fullbacks in the EFL stepping into midfield next season. So as much as you want to try and copy Guardiola, there's going to be limits on this because, you know, Manuel Akanji, again, a player who Borussia Dortmund fans were like, what? Why would Man City want him? You know, and he kind of is just so comfortable at times in a, in a team like this. And I've seen reporters, you know, in the Bundesliga saying, well, the number one thing about Akanji's game was basically his ability, his, his kind of patience on the ball and his ability to start moves by just not being afraid to have it at his feet. Basically, that was it. You know, defensively, there were question marks over him. And it was interesting to see, if you like, the pass before the assist come from an Akanji basically running when if no one's going to tackle me, I'll just keep moving forward, I'll keep moving forward. And it was a, gr- a great pass, really, um, which delivered the moment. And when it came to Rodri, it was a fantastic finish as well, um, which almost doesn't get the credit because he's such a good player. Today, he's actually won the Champions League player of the season, so that's good for him. You've just touched on, Hugh, if I have a favourite thing about Pep, it's the way he judges a player the way other coaches don't. And I think he judges players fearlessly. So the story of Akanji, who was deemed to be a bit of an idiot by some fans, um, couldn't wait to get rid of him. Um, because because you see, what you see in the media is you see the mistakes and exactly the same thing happened with John Stones. Do you remember? John Stones used to be the butt of so many jokes it's all very well trying to play from the back but John Stones you make so many mistakes and they're often critical mistakes you just can't do that and I think Akanji was slightly similar in in that he clearly had the intelligence to know that playing from the back was a good thing but he would make howlers at the same time and people always focus on the one negative in 10 passes that were good and Guardiola doesn't doesn't seem to care that you what he likes about a player, rather, is that if the mistakes come from a good place. So if a player makes a mistake because he's trying to better himself or make the system work better, and that the player has an innate intelligence about the game, he is prepared to overlook the gaffes and see beyond what the headlines see, which is, oh, you know, Stones, at error for goal, or, or Kanji, at error for goal, he's, he sees the a deeper, bigger picture, and that is the sign of a, a really thoughtful coach, I think. It's, it was incredible, I think, throughout the season from Manchester City, the way that they turned things around. I said so many times, I didn't see a huge winning run in this team. Um, you know, where's it going to come from? And, and, you know, another thing about Guardiola, which we've seen in previous seasons, but was perfectly executed this season, was the rotation of the squad, the ability to have his best players kind of going at the at full tilt right at the end of the season, a period after the World Cup where a lot of them were being left out and we were all kind of scratching our heads as to why basically the nine on the bench were probably good enough to win the Premier League, you know, two players down in most games. Um, it was in- incredible the depth that they had, but also he's been able to save and then come towards the end of the season, put his best players out regularly enough that they were really motoring into the, the final stages. And even though they didn't play their best in, in the FA Cup final, didn't play their best in the Champions League final, still had enough to get over the line, which is also a credit to them because they won it in a different way, uh, if you like. So it was it was a huge achievement, the treble. The only thing left to say on it really is, and it, I, I agree with you, Alison, we can kind of expect this to happen again with Manchester City in the next five years. Why wouldn't we? I don't know. Everyone always leaps for the kind of to say that there's a period of dominance coming into view and there is a period of City are undoubtedly going to be among the clubs challenging to win this every season but 
I think without Guardiola, there is a question, and like, everything that's gone before suggests that the running of this club is is almost faultless, and you know they will have a succession plan. But whoever that man's going to be, it's not going to be Guardiola. But I, I always, I'm always slightly hesitant to to say there's a period of dominance coming up in terms of like, well, you know, people are saying they're going to see a treble, treble and stuff. Like they'll be competing for it, but there's a reason why it's taken 13 years to do this. There's a reason why it's so rare. Like, I may be wrong. Clip this up if, if there's a treble, treble in two, two years' time. But, isn't that the but I don't he's think that's, that isn't happens. Isn't that the reason he's staying for a treble, treble? Again, I, I don't Guardiola. Know. People would say, yeah, yeah why? Well, Guardiola you know. is staying because there is no better place for him to be in world football. Yeah. He has to have a hunger. He has to have a hunger. He does, oh. but he'll have that wherever he goes. No, he'll have a break when he leaves. He has, city. A, he has an incredible team. He has a club that, a group of players that will do anything for him, essentially, in terms of what they do out on the pitch. Club that totally trusts him. All the money in the world to spend for whatever player he wants. Everyone wants to play for him. Why would you leave? Because you quit You quit when you've hit the pinnacle. So he he would hate to leave. So, so say he sees out his contract, he leaves in two years, and it so happens because of various factors out of his control that they come second in the league and are knocked out in the quarters of the Champions League and win the Carabao Cup. I mean, he doesn't want to bow out like that, does yeah. he? Okay. All right. Well, we shall see. I mean, I would predict that Manchester City will win another treble in the next five years. I kind of can't see it not happening. As long as Guardiola's in charge in the next two years, tough. But if he stays for five, if he extends his contract beyond the two that he's got left, uh, I think you can definitely expect it to happen. The, the, the one thing that's slightly... You don't want to think about it just now, but it's the truth of the matter is that it probably, you know, we've got Newcastle with the Saudi well coming in and who knows about Manchester United. Like, it's going to, it might need competition. Wealth, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that's yeah. something that's usually distasteful to think about, but um, it's the truth. Well, let's move on finally to the politics of Manchester City's treble. Uh, the football has been absolutely sensational, but for some, there was an apathy to an English club winning a treble. It certainly didn't get the reaction that you might expect from, I think, neutral football fans. I mean, no one felt it was kind of a, a journey for a team that was, you know, in the in the bottom tier of the football league, who's worked its way up over the last 20 years. You know, it didn't have any of those hallmarks of an incredible story. In fact, most people were kind of saying this is the opposite. And you can almost understand why. Huge injection of cash. The backdrop to all of it is ultimately sports washing. Abu Dhabi and the United Arab Emirates investing heavily in football to cleanse their image, particularly when it comes to human rights, to promote their nation across the world. In July of 2020 as well, Manchester City had a two-year European ban overturned after accusations that the club's owners had disguised at least £204 million as sponsorship. Those went unproven at the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Cass said the decision emphasised that most of the alleged breaches reported by the adjudication chamber, the CFCB, that's UEFA's club financial control body, were either not established or time-barred. Um, the CFCB, though, added that City had failed to cooperate in their investigation. They, of course, were cleared and given a €10 million Euro fine. What is currently hanging over Manchester City is the Premier League's four-year investigation into what's believed to have focused on two main areas, sponsorship deals in which the money is suspected from coming directly from the club's owners and an apparently secret shadow contract for their former manager, Roberto Mancini. Uh, those 
charges also relating to failing to cooperate with the investigation. Manchester City, of course, deny any and all wrongdoing. Uh, the club also understood to have challenged the involvement of Murray Rose in KC. That's the head of the Premier League's independent judicial panel. The person who appoints the chair of the disciplinary commission under the rules, he can also appoint himself, by the way, but Rosen's profile on his Chambers website had stated he was a member of the MCC and a fan of Arsenal FC. And that's the main, I think, bone of contention when it comes to Manchester City's lawyers. But we can expect that case to be in the courts for a number of years. So that has been hanging over their success this season. And maybe that has tinged it for some people. It's worth us exploring that. We're joined by the chief sports writer of the Times, Owen Slot. Hi, Owen. Hey, good to be with you. Thank you for joining us. Before we get to the ins and outs of the politics of Manchester City, you've wrote a brilliant piece. You spent the weekend in Abu Dhabi watching the Champions League final. Tell us what you learned. Yeah, what, what a weird thing when they get the, the, the big games in Istanbul and, and you sort of go in the other direction or slightly in the other direction to Abu Dhabi. But um, I, I just kind of felt with this game coming up that I was more interested in in being somewhere else rather than watching what was largely um, believed to be a predictable outcome. Not the game quite turned out that way, but uh, I wanted to see it from, from a different angle. And uh, over, over the years and certainly over the, over the recent months and weeks, uh, as this moment, we've been building towards the, the moment of Saturday night, there's been so much talk about uh, Abu Dhabi's success and Abu Dhabi's final triumph and how they'll feel in Abu Dhabi. And, I was just really interested to see kind of what that looked like because I really didn't know. I just um, I, I had no idea if people would be delighted in Abu Dhabi or if Abu Dhabi would be kind of parading their victory. Uh, and actually, what I found was was that it was all really rather strangely downbeat. There was very little celebration. I, mean, I didn't really see her, really any celebration. I tried to talk to lots of people, and I, I kind of feel that the talk about, talk about the man on the street in Abu Dhabi is almost impossible because it's such a diverse population but um pe- people are really happy about Manchester City they 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 like the association with it there but I don't I, I get the impression that the sort of fanatical element is is minimal um absolutely minimal and you, you just you just don't see it around you go into the airport you don't see a picture of Harland or you, 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 you drive a in your taxi into town and you don't see billboards with Kevin De Bruyne or whatever, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's just could be anywhere. The fact that Abu Dhabi have funded it, you wouldn't know. I would have expected if the plan had been working, that there would be a number of people there, kind of big man city fans. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe some of those, the, the wealthier ones were the ones who, who got tickets to, um, for, for Istanbul and so, so on, on Saturday night I attended this um, the, the equivalent of a, of a, a fan zone or a, fa- a fan park it was it was in a shopping centre because it's too hot to be outside at 11 o'clock at night and there were um, about 500 people there and, and it was really interesting because it was a, a very diverse group there was all sorts of nationalities quite a lot of Emiratis in, in their robes quite a lot of women as well uh, which you probably wouldn't have seen in Qatar, for instance. And um, I, I spoke to quite a few of those people, and 
and I spoke to some Emiratis, and they were they were really sort of passionate. And a couple of them whipped out their phones and said, oh, "This was me at at the, at the Etihad for the Brighton game. This was me at the Wembley final, Cup final, um, a week beforehand." And uh, and they were really passionate. So it'd be wrong to say no one's sort of gone mad gone mad for it. But 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 equally, just wandering around I, the, the same shopping mall the day before I went there, just to sort of check out to see where I was where this thing was going to be and. You didn't. I didn't see anyone wearing a, a City shirt. I actually saw two people in United shirts and one one in an Arsenal shirt. Um, I went to the Puma shop where you could buy Man City gear, and um, there was kind of no one really in there. And there, there's no, there was no kind of like fervent kind of it's the day before the biggest day of our lives type type thing. And 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 some people said, well, some people said to me, well, what would you expect? It's not Abu Dhabi that owns this thing. It's Sheikh Mansur that owns this thing. And that and that's kind of strictly true, but it's also kind of not. I mean, Abu Dhabi, the, the amount of wealth that's gone from the nation and from state-sponsored state companies into Man City is, is vast. And it, it kind of is and kind of isn't. It, it's just fascinating to, to be there. And, you, and one thing that, that, that kind of struck me is that if it was a – if it is a great big joined up plan, then uh, I didn't really, I didn't really spot it. The way it's been structured with its network of uh, of sponsors uh, uh, and um, uh, and partners, that's very clever, very joined up, and that's the sort of thing that um, the Premier League and FFP are, uh, are looking at through the FFP rules. But but actually, uh, visibility wise, you, you kind of you kind of can't spot it. Owen, it was a a, a lovely piece but i i wasn't surprised what you discovered because Sheikh mansour was at the final but it was only his second yeah. game in the flesh so it in, what you in saw 13 years in yeah. 13 so it reflects it directly reflects the owner's <laughs> passion in inverted commas for it whatever's going on in terms of motivation for owning city and making them the world's greatest football team that motivation isn't one of flag waving, heart rending, crying if you lose, screaming with delight if you win. Passion is it? There's something else going on. Yeah. It, it, so, so when when Mansour bought City has been pretty well documented. He he hadn't been angling for City for for like weeks or months or years, did he? He was he was like at the shopping centre, and that was the one he happened to pick. Um, you know, it could have been any other club up for sale at, at that time or a yacht so, yeah well yes okay, okay, sort of so so it, it's different to um so qatar win the world what right to stage the world cup and they want clearly wanted the world to know what their country was all uh, was all about they wanted to give the impression that they were big football fans and and if you now uh switch to saudi there's a a clear message with a you know a a big joined up economical plan about what football and um and more recently um golf is you know what what they're trying to do with it so no you're right i don't really i don't think what abu dhabi is intending to do with it or what mansour has, has intended to do with it is quite so clear it's put their nation on on the map but kind of and if it really wants to do it, it could be doing it far more effectively 
they are officially the first state-owned club to win the Champions League. Although when you look at Real Madrid and and Chelsea, you'd, you'd probably say they were both state-backed clubs at periods of time when we, they lifted the trophy. What does it say about football that we've had a club now get over this hurdle? Um, and what does it mean going forward, if you like? Will we see uh, more soft power wielded in, in European football in particular, in your opinion? Well, I, I think, first of all, it, it's, it suggests that, that... So Saturday night was like the start of the new year or that, that we've seen coming, that the pyramids just got a lot thinner at the top. It seems that the ridiculous wealth from a party such as a nation state is is almost what's required to do this now. So I th- I think that's definitely where we've got to, which some people may think is a bit of a shame and not 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 the way it could or should be. I think what why people want to do this is is has various different um, objectives. Abramovich wasn't trying to make a, a statement about uh, about Russia or about his oil wells. Um, and as, as discussed, I think that the different Arab nations have got, have got slight uh, coming at slightly different angles. Uh, sports washing is is a big part of it, but I just don't know to what extent uh, Sheikh Mansour was uh, has uh, is trying to um, improve the image of of Abu Dhabi through through this project. I think we can all project and, and guess, but no no one's there to say. It's one of the weird and, and fascinating things is this has been going on for a decade and a half and no one's really explained why. He doesn't have to explain anything to anyone. That's just the nature of the game. I think the thing you said in the answer before that, Owen, was, was the kind of crux of it. It's about putting the, the country on the map. And... You said that you know there might be more effective ways of doing it, such as what the Premier League is now the, the biggest global brand on the planet. I don't know what else projects the name of Abu Dhabi around the world like the Premier League. Yeah, I guess we need to get the marketing department into that, <laughs> don't we? To answer, to answer that, there's maybe not. You know, they're not really. It's not aimed at the people of their own country. It's a, it's about. The image they're projecting around the world—that's yeah. that—that to me seems to be it, the. It, we could call it speculation if you like, but given the sums that have been poured into Manchester City and the fact that Saturday was only his second game, you, you can't sit back and say he's a massive football fan, <laughs> you know, or, or, or he just wanted to see his team win the win the the Champions League or the Premier League, and he'd he'd supported Manchester City since he was five years old, and suddenly thought I'll just put some of my money into my my club. It's clearly not that, so. Listen, if they'd have taken over Manchester City and spent at a level that was equal to some of the clubs in the mid-table of the Premier League and said, if we get to the odd season in Europe, that would be great. But they broke even the standards of spending that, that Manchester City had, sp- had had set, really. And I know Manchester United have spent a lot of money, but clearly their owners haven't been pouring those sums into the club. You know, yeah, the, the, if, if, they were, if they were a private equity company, we'd be looking at this going... God, they've been clever, haven't they? They picked it up for was it 150 million they bought bought it for, and if they were going to sell it now, who who knows? That would that would be one billion, two. Mm. Um, but we know the motivations of private equity firms; they're, they're very yeah, stated yeah. and clear. Yeah, exactly. So, so we we would be saying that. Um, you know, Roman Abramovich, we didn't think got into it because he thought I'll, I'll flip this club for a lot of money in 20 years' time. You know, we we know that's not why he got into it. And we kind of know that's not why Manchester City have got into it. They've probably got enough money, don't they? Well, I think we all hope so. Owen, did you did you raise the um, 
115 outstanding charges against City to anyone you spoke to. Yeah, uh, and um, the um, the response was was a, a bit like it, it, in Qatar. Uh, if you if you brought up say human rights in Qatar, you, you sort of get a, a roll of the eyes, or you don't really understand what it's like yeah. here. But but it, but, but in, in Abu Dhabi, people would tend to dismiss it or, or disbelieve it, and not really want to engage in it. But also, uh, to a large extent, the, the, the bigger, the sort of the more general answer. And I'm talking about, I'm not talking about um, uh, officials or sponsors here. I'm talking about people who, uh, uh, people I spoke to, that it was more like, sort of hands up, sort of not my business, don't really know, don't really know about that bit. Sorry, you know, can't really talk about that. It was, it was like not, not, not our business. Yeah, well, I mean, there'll be plenty of, um, honestly, there'll be plenty of fans who aren't City fans, who are just general fans of sport in Britain, who, if you raise the 115 charges, will go, will raise their hands up and say, oh, I don't know about that sort of stuff, because it's essentially quite boring, because we don't, we don't know exactly which of those charges are going to hold up. So it's just boring until everyone knows what's going on. It just sounds like admin, doesn't it? And no one wants... No one wants it. But I do feel on a more subconscious level, most most people, not the, obviously rivalries aside, but I think most football fans were supporting West Ham to win in Europe last week, whereas most neutrals were not behind City because they there's a sort of sense that it's not a, a level playing field and that the romance has been killed somewhat I think you're completely right, Ali. I mean, I watched watched the West Ham game and was like willing them on, and I thought it was a, you know, it's a, it was a, a great story, a great triumph, and you felt that it was a, a, you felt it was genuine the whole article from beginning to end. And there's always there's always an envy with a super dominant team in in English football. I mean, that's that's just established, you know, whether it was United a, a decade ago or Chelsea or or Liverpool even further back. There's there is that kind of um, everyone, everyone against the, the the best club, the top club. That's that's historical. But the way the way that this has been done and the question marks around it, they just clearly have built distrust, breeds distrust in in other football fans from from other clubs. And I don't know. It would be fascinating to know the percentage of non City fans in the in in the UK who were supporting City on them um, on Saturday night. But I would imagine it would be pretty minimal. Mm. Uh, Owen Slot, thank you for being with us, our chief sports writer from The Times. And you can read his article, Watching Man City's win in Abu Dhabi. No fireworks, car horns or flags right now. Okay, check it out on The Times app. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, guys. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com.
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So very quickly, I think, to end off the, the podcast, that it's an interesting point on... You know, the, 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 uh, an apathy. I think there's a few camps when it comes to the reaction to Manchester City's victory. There were, there are some fans screaming, one day it could be us. And so Manchester City kind of gives us a reason to believe that one day we might win a European Cup, despite the fact that we're currently a League Two side, for example, um, which I can understand because um, that's probably the only way that it's ever going to happen to you. There are clubs in the top flight who maybe look at Manchester City as, you know, a club that was traditionally beneath them and have seen them kind of fly past and hurtle into the top echelon of of European football, um, who kind of think it's a bit false because of the money. And then there are some who I think care about sports washing and care about, you know, the likes of Qatar being involved, the likes of Saudi Arabia being involved and Russia being involved in football and, and, and people who oil, own oil companies and even American private equity firms and kind of concerned about what this is leading us towards in the future of football. There's another camp, I think, yeah. people who like... Just like football. L- l- and like, like <laughs> the people involved. I like the players. I like what Pep Guardiola has done. But that's like, the thing, I found that interesting. I, I can separate that. I can separate that from the process. But I spoke to Manchester so City. many football fans over the last couple of days who are like, it's a weird feeling because I love Guardiola. Yeah. I think he's the best coach in the world. I love the football that Manchester City play. I really like their players as well. But in a weird way, it's a big team in terms of the players and manager, but not a big club who've won the Champions League. And so it feels weird. You know, for, in all, all intents and purposes, you're basically watching in terms of the players and manager, you know, the, one of the greatest Real Madrid sides of all time or Bayern Munich of all time. And we got behind those teams over decades because of what they represented to us and because of what Manchester City represent to some fans they just can't see that club in the same way despite the fact that they see the team as being one of their favourites ever they they don't feel that affinity we all know it you know there are some that just love Inter Milan and at the weekend just wanted Inter to win because of the games that they've watched of Inter Milan over the last two or three decades you know people feel that about even a Borussia Dortmund or a Bayern Munich they haven't yet gravitated towards Manchester City as a club yeah it's because there is anti-romance involved actually because what City have shown is that if you decide if you sit down to decide you're going to buy a relatively large club not historically one of the most amazing but you know a club with some some degree of stature all you need is somewhat the best coach in the world got the money, can seduce him, tick. You need someone who's very good at doing deals. They got that in place early, tick. And unlimited money, tick. There are three basic things that not everyone is going to have access to ever. So, but lots because, of because there, is, there is only one coach who's the best coach in the world, isn't there? Yeah. And there are the same, for some reason, in football, this is really weird to me, there seem to be very few people who could be a director of football and pull it off at the moment. They seem to be flawed and to cause conflict and are rare indeed. But if you could, if you can put the backroom staff together, 
i.e. The, the people who do the deals and the best coach and have unlimited money and oil money's going to run out soon, then then you can do that. And it's interesting perhaps, but it's not romantic. That is not romantic. You can look at... There's more. There was more romance in in the tin pot trophy that is the Europe, Europa Conference League, and it is it is tin pot. Let's face it. But there was more romance in that because of lots and lots of individual stories that had proper proper depth and texture to them. Even just David Moyes and his dad being in the stadium, and the fact it was his first trophy, and we know him, and we know what he's been through, and the ups and the downs of his career. It's been Dickensian almost. It's, it's proper stuff you want to dramatise on the telly. That had romance to it because it was against the odds. And uh, for a moment we thought, God, they could win a European title and go down. You know, there were that that's romantic. What City have done is just extremely good, well-funded business acumen. And but that's not, not romantic. But they're not the first. That's the, thing, that's the, the only thing that I find quite interesting. Because what do you mean they're, they're not the first? They're not the first. We, they we, are the first to have done it the way they did it, which is we will get the best coach. We will wait for the best coach. Mm. But the point is... And yeah, throw the, money the, at the it. Point the point is Chelsea, Chelsea aren't too dissimilar in terms of what they did. Again, I'm not saying that people had strong feelings about Chelsea because I, I know a lot of you now saying, well, I didn't like Chelsea winning trophies either because of what they represented. But if you can't dissociate these two things, those two, the, the funding, essentially, that's what we're talking about, the funding mm. of, and the wealth from the football then you're not going to enjoy modern football ever again because this is it. This is it. Middle Eastern money is shaping sport. Why are you, why are you killing our dreams I'm like this? I'm just telling you the truth. <laughs> like we, so you have, to, you have to, if you love football, you have to be able to dissociate those two things. I think and it's going to be tough. It doesn't mean you like it. It's going to be it tough going forward. It doesn't mean you like it. Look, yeah. look at the World Cup. Messi lifted the World Cup finally in Doha and he's playing for a, a Qatari club. And he's taking money from Saudi Arabia to promote the World Cup. Like football has got a huge conflict now. But this, this is it. This is but the you've interesting got to be able thing to enjoy the football. about the reaction to it because the conversations that we were having after Man City complete the treble, and I get it, it's a small, very small pool. Me and four or five different WhatsApp groups of football fans, but essentially, quickly turned to what will football become? Are we going to watch the Club World Cup or are we going to watch a European competition that's based out of a Middle Eastern country that plays every Wednesday and all the games are held there and there's you're no one in the stadium? That line there. But, just, but the thing so is, we're already, but, but we're listen, already here. We're already here. You think we're too, so we're almost there, you'll say? No, we're not, we're not there. That'll never happen. I don't think that'll ever happen. Why? Because it won't be allowed to happen. Because we'll it's what happens when I, you try to go too I, far. I know we don't talk about golf on this podcast, but that's the context in why people were bringing this up because they'd just seen essentially Saudi Arabia buy golf buy the sport of golf okay, and they, they could they buy football but went, they couldn't move it why not that's what I'm saying of course they could no chance why anyway we're going off piste here I don't think that's true we talk, spoke, spoke about that when the Super League was attempted I don't think that will ever work but the money is already here it's, it's in sport this is a this is a, a plan <laughs> and we're already well down the and track and we can enjoy it when PSG fall flat on their face every season so you got to do stuff <laughs> Yeah. Well, it doesn't look like Manchester City are going to do that much. Uh, they complete the treble. They became the 10th team to do it. Pep Guardiola, two of those teams, Barcelona uh, and Manchester City, which is kind of incredible for any coach. No argument over his legacy, really. Um, I know some were saying, you know, he's better than Ferguson and all those comparisons with 99 and this, that and the other. 
We'll leave that up to you. I think we tried our best, but we're just going to end up fighting physically in a moment. <laughs> Gregor and I are going to go off and debate the future of football, Saudi Arabia, or will it stay on the continent and all that stuff. Uh, but we will be back uh, with the game podcast uh, for the international games upcoming. So we'll be with you on Thursday and Monday. Big games uh, for all of the home nations for us to discuss. We'll uh, have some transfer news, I'm sure, thrown into that as well. But this was a Manchester City special. You can get more on their triumph. Uh, on the Times podcast right now. Make sure you pick up a paper as well. We'll be back, um, as I say, over the next week and just before the start of next season. So we're only a couple to go now. Maybe I'll get some of my reactions to the end of the season into the next podcast as well. Uh, Make sure you're with us for that. Hit the notification button. Enjoy your week. We'll see you on Thursday. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings so you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.